Hi everyone, this is Carmen and Christina, and this is Historias Unknown, a podcast where we talk about Latin American history. Sometimes it's horrible and deals with heavy topics like racism, corruption, and genocide. But more than that, it's also about resistance, power, and community. And Carmen, how do you feel about Westerns? Westerns. I had never been a fan. They make me think about John Wayne, whomst I hate <laughs> because I I never first of all, I always thought he was ugly and I don't remember if I've seen a young picture of him. Either way, he's an ugly white man and <laughs> and then I listened to the Behind the Bastards episode. I don't remember if it was a two-parter or one episode, but anyway, they have an episode on him and that really cemented how is I feel he about him. He's the, the worst. One who like took no, did he slap some I don't know. Anyway. I don't I don't remember. I just remember he fucking sucks and he's hella racist. Oh and he was okay. all about like being masculine, but he avoided the draft. <laughs> you know how they be loser. That's hilarious. Um and he was like a domestic violence abuser. Anyway, when I think of Westerns, I think of him. Wow, I have to listen to that episode. Yeah, you do. Okay, so you're not a fan. Yeah, me neither. On top of that, Westerns ha- have like a-, a history of depicting Native Americans. Yeah. You know, in horrible, stereotypical ways, which you know, I-, I I'm not a fan. I've never been a fan of Westerns. Yeah. That's what I think about when I hear westerns (laughs) okay then we have the same sentiments um okay so today i'm gonna be telling you about a historic activist but before i tell you about her i have to tell you about a western okay Hmm. and (laughs) this western is it was released in 1930 it's called under the texan moon i'm gonna read the plot to you first okay so actor frank fay he's white Portrays a Mexican man named Don Carlos. Great. He rides into a small Texas border settlement on the 4th of July in the early 1880s. Don Carlos is accompanied by his two inseparable companions, who are also played by white men, Georgie Stone and George Cooper, but portraying Mexicans. Love it. (laughs) The day is celebrated in the style of a Spanish fiesta. And Don Carlos challenges a rough Texan who's played by Noah Beery. And I don't know if, I think this rough Texan's supposed to be white and I oh. don't get his name anyway. Only to find himself invited to undertake the dangerous task of capturing a cattle rustler who's been stealing the cattle from Lazy Y Ranch. He accepts the task on the promise of receiving $7,000 in gold if he can return both the thief and the stolen cattle within 10 days. During the next nine days, Don Carlos spends time making love to every pretty girl he meets, serenading many of them. <laughs> I'm sorry, I forgot to add another reason I hate Westerns. It's because they also depict Mexicans <laughs> in a horrible... They just depict anyone who's not white in a horrible, stereotypical way. Yes. But it, it spread like the Latin lover stereotype yeah. and the promiscuous Latina, angry Latina stereotype as well. So, yeah, it, 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 what did you say? Furthered? What? Spread? I don't know what the what hell I said anymore. Use? Yeah. Okay. But I'm agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> that it spread. I'm sorry. I literally Latin forgot lover. what I said. 
No, I know me too. <laughs> like I, I know what you said in uh, premise, but I don't know the words you use. Yeah, me either. <laughs> it's our ADHD. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yes, it spread this stereotype of the Latin lover and the fiery, sexy Latina. And that is the stereotype I hate the most. Me too. And we need to cover an episode on this. On I would love still. to. Like the history of the... Yeah. Yeah. Spicy Latina. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Back to this. I'm not done with the, the, with the plot Sorry. yet. <laughs> During the next nine days, Don Carlos spends his time making love to every pretty girl he meets, serenading them with a tune while playing his guitar and his two companions join in the harmonizing. He is a liar. He lies to all of them. He tells each girl exactly what she wishes to hear. And throughout this whole time, he does nothing for the job he was hired. Nothing to earn his reward. <laughs> Sorry. I also, they depicted okay. Mexicans as lazy. Yes. <laughs> yes. And robbers. Oh, yeah. Criminals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the 10th day, he captures the cattle rustler and returns the cattle to everyone's surprise using a simple method that no one thought of. Then he rides back to Mexico with his latest conquest in his arms. So I don't know how the movie was received by like the white audience. I mean, it was it's a Western and it's the second Western to have been in color. Oh, and it's time. I'm assuming that and it's time it was probably popular. I don't know. Yeah. However, it was not well received by Mexicans. Shocking. And and Latinos. Yes. (laughs) And New York Latinos specifically protested this. um, They called the movie anti-Mexican. Because as we already said, it portrays the main character, also not played by a Mexican, right? Through stereotypes, it shows Mexicans as liars and womanizers and drunks and lazy because he didn't do any of the thing he was supposed to do until the last day. Yeah. Right. And it, and it by by some miracle, he, he pulled mm-hmm. this off like it, it wasn't he wasn't working. And so Latinos organized to picket, protest the movie. They were led by a man named Gonzalo Gonzalez. And a little bit about him. He was a communist. He, I think he was 30 at this time. And he had been unemployed for uh, and, and I, uh, the 1930s. So this is like the start of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And he was becoming very disillusioned with like the distribution of power, racism and everything like that. Right. I love it. Yeah, I mean, not too. the circumstances, but you know, but that he was like, I always see a quote. Up. Yeah, like we know during these horrible times that has been all of the history of the United States. <laughs> um, to not let the horribleness like lead you to despair, but to let it radicalize you, and that's yeah. what it sounds like he's doing or was doing. Yes, yeah, and so he was leading this protest against the movie. And the protest was met by violence acted out by the police. And I could not for the life of me find what happened in the protest, how things played out. All I know is that the police murdered Gonzalo Gonzalez. (gasps) Wow. And this sparked nationwide protest by Latinos. And it sparked a light in Luisa Moreno, who participated in these protests. Luisa Moreno is who I will be talking about today. She was protesting the movie too. She was in New York at the time. And then when she saw Gonzalo being murdered, she's like, fuck this even more. Mm. And it just sparked her to just go all in into 
being an activist for the Latino community. And one might say she paved the road for labor organizers, specifically Mexican labor organizers in the United States. And I, I mean, paved the way for like movements like the United Farm Workers. But but we don't know about her. <laughs> I, as you were saying all these things, I like thought about how much I didn't know, <laughs> how much I don't know about her. And even this protest and Gonzalo. Yeah, me too. And I, I wish I could find more information about Gonzalo. I just found there was a communist website like communist comrades or something.com or something that's where i found he was 30 at the time mm-hmm. he lived with his mom he was unemployed that's where i found that information mom. it wasn't anywhere else and i was like this is madness i just want yeah. to know more i mean it's just upsetting because like when was when do you remember learning about i don't know like mexican-american history like while you know you went to school right like yeah I the only thing was Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. We need to put out a book with like the women we've talked about. Yeah. I just don't know how. <laughs> I will figure it we'll out. We'll Google it. <laughs> I will. But yeah, so this sparked a light in Luisa Moreno. And Luisa Moreno was actually Guatemalan. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. And I I found this because I was like, I don't know what to talk about. And then I was like, I feel like I never talk about Guatemala. So I just looked up like Guatemalan history. And Mm -hmm. of course, when you look up El Salvador or Guatemala history, everything that comes up is like... Is Mexican? No. Oh. (laughs) Basically colonization when that happened. And then the wars. Yeah. And then so I was like on page six of Google (laughs) when I found her. So, yeah, that's how that happened. <laughs> so, as I said, she was a labor movement activist. She union, union. Oh, my God. She union. Unionized? I can't talk today. Yeah. Okay. She, I got you. She unionized workers. I already said it for you. I know. I thank you. You wanted to practice. Okay. <laughs> I did. Yeah. And she brought together the first National Latino Civil Rights Assembly in 1939. All right, Miss Moreno. Mm-hmm. Um, also don't know how she came about the name Luisa Moreno because she was born Blanca Rosa Lopez Rodriguez. What? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Interesting. <laughs> I tried to find information and I could not. <laughs> However, she goes by Luisa Moreno and I don't know how it happened. Wow. <laughs> so she was actually born to a wealthy family in Guatemala City. But as she grew into her teenage years, she was feeling not feeling it she was really down and just yeah disenchanted with like how women were treated disillusioned yeah with the treatment of women especially when trying to gain an education like she couldn't go to college she then organized her wealthy elite acquaintances friends people in her group uh, into this thing called la sociedad gabriela mistral and they had petition drives and lobbying to advocate for the admission of women to attend universities in Guatemala. And it, it was successful. They did eventually gain that access to education they didn't have before. So they couldn't go to university before that? No, oh. they could not. After this, though, she she was like rejecting her elite rich status, right? And then she just moved. She left Guatemala and went to Ciudad Mexico. She was 19. Wow, she was young. <laughs> yeah. 
And this is where she decided she was going to pursue a career in journalism. And she also wrote some like very, I guess, famous poetry now when she was there under a different name, though. And here she met her husband, Angel de Leon, and he was an artist. He's also from Guatemala. I'm sorry. I thought that his last name was going to be Moreno. That's where I, she got it from. I don't understand how <laughs> it happened. I'm telling you. Interesting. I don't know. I'm also very confused because one source said that she at some point moved to Oakland, California, and she attended the shout College out. of Holy Names. Oh, did you say shout out? Yeah. Oakland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she graduated from the College of Holy Names in Oakland. And then one source says she moved there from with her parents. Oh. But then other sources says she hadn't gotten to the United States until 1927 when she moved to New York City with her husband. Mm, that's confusing. And But she did graduate from there at some point. I just don't hmm. know when it happened. I could not find very specific details. But she, in 1927, did go to New York City with her husband. And they had their daughter, Mithil, M-Y-T-Y-L. I've never oh, seen that. Okay. That, that cute name, I think. Yeah. And this is where she first leaped into activism, uh, activism really. Yeah. Well, not even. Labor oh, okay. activism, I should specify. Because like labor I mean, clearly she had been, yeah. Okay. Clearly she had already been an activist since being in Guatemala, oh, right. where she organized everyone yeah. In, yeah, um, into advocating for women to attend college. Yeah. But I'm a labor organizer. This began when she got to New York City. And when she arrived, she started seeing like how uh, minorities, not just la the Latinos, but like everyone, black, mm. Latinos. Like, that was mainly who was in the area that she lived in. So she saw how they were being treated, how they were segregated within the city and how it was just worse during the Great Depression. Her husband became unemployed during this time. And so she was the one supporting the family. She worked at a garment factory near Spanish Harlem. And this is what a historian said. So historian George Sanchez said here she had contact with socialist Puerto Rican workers. And this radicalized her and pushed her towards labor activism. So she worked uh, for hours on the sewing machine. And she saw how these were sweatshops and, and yeah. how the conditions, work conditions were terrible. A lot of the uh, labor organizing came from garment workers and women garment workers, from what I've learned. Yeah. After this, she worked, uh, she found a job in a place called Zell Green's Cafeteria in New York City. And uh, this was 1930 still, or uh, sorry, now, because 1928 is when she started working at the garment factory. My bad. So in 1930, she started working at Cell Green's Cafeteria in New York City. And they, her and her co-workers uh, went on strike. And they faced uh, police violence, of course. Mm -hmm. And because the, the police was trying to prevent them from picketing. And she, I don't know how she obtained a fur coat. <laughs> but she obtained a fur coat during this and strolled through, like, past a policeman. Like if she was like a wealthy person just entering the cafeteria to eat there, not mm -hmm. a worker. And <laughs> once she got past them to the front door, she took out a picket sign from under her coat. Oh, my God. Coat, <laughs> and then just like put it out into view so everyone could see it. <laughs> then she was ba she was after that. She was pretty much like tackled 
oh, by the wow. policeman who then lifted her off the sidewalk and I mean, basically, like, attacked her for this. Mm -hmm. She was bleeding, like, from the face (gasps) from this. But she considers herself, like, lucky Mm because she was not hurt more than that. But (laughs) just the way she entered. Yeah. (laughs) Iconic. Pulled out. Yeah. Pulled out uh, the picket from her. (laughs) Picket sign from the fur coat. Like, what? She's like, I know how to fool y'all because she was wealthy before. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? She probably had the fur coat from yeah <laughs> when she was wealthy um, or something. Also, she's a tiny woman. She's five feet tall. Oh, solidarity for short queens. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, when you look at pictures of her, I I would picture her as tall, and she I think she just has like a tall person face. Like here, let me send you. I'll put she it. She has in a tall chat. attitude. She does. But I would not, I just wouldn't picture her being so short because to me, she... Maybe she knew how to work her angles. Probably. There's a tiny picture of her in this. She does have a tall face. Right? (laughs) I think because it's long, like a long face and like a a long neck. Yeah, yeah. They're all so small because they're old pictures. But here, let me send you this one because she looks like she'd be rich and tall in this other one. (laughs) Oh my God, this website... I hadn't looked at this one before, but I guess she rejected her long name and changed it to Luisa Moreno when she left Guatemala City to reject in rejection of her wealthy status. Oh, so she just changed it when okay. she because you know how she she left to, Mex- to Mexico City yeah. to reject her status. And I guess this is when she changed her name and why she changed her name. Interesting. I'm glad I looked that picture up to send it to you. <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't know that. But yeah, doesn't she look like super tall? I like could see be her tall. being taller. Yeah. Yeah. But no, she's a tiny five foot Guatemalan woman. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's pretty obvious she would end up joining the Communist Party because I think labor activism and communism goes hand in hand. Yeah. So in 1930, she did officially join the Communist Party and she continued to work in in different labor movements in New York City. And then she was hired by the American Federation of Labor as a professional organizer. Once she did that, she participated in movements, not just in New York City, but she like went around the country organizing and unionizing. Wow, hard word. I'm in a hard time with that word. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> she unionized Black and Latina cigar rollers in Florida. Mm. So in Tampa, she helped these cigar workers officially become a union because uh, they had been, they were being terrorized by the KKK. What? Like they were trying to prevent the union and just, you know, attacking them and stuff. She, after that, went to organize cane workers in Louisiana. I can't talk today. Louisiana. Yes. In Louisiana. <laughs> Louis- oh my God. How do you Louisiana? say this? Louisiana? I can't say it either, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) I said it in Spanish for a reason. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) And throughout the country, going around um, unionizing. Amazing. (laughs) And she also ended up doing some work in California, specifically tuna packing workers in San Diego. By 1934, she joined the Congress of Industrial Organizations the CIO, and she actually was the first, like, 
woman leader in this organization. And under the CIO, she formed a new alliance of unions to organize workers. This was the United Cannery Agricultural Packing and then the Allied Workers of America are the two that Mm. she organized Mm -hmm. or created under the CIO. And she was, oh, I guess not only the first woman leader, but the first woman and Latina member of the CIO council in California. So um, iconic. Yeah. The United Cannery Agricultural Packing and Allied Workers of America was mostly Latino or actually a lot of Latina women. In 1937, she would move to San Diego to further help the fish and cannery workers. Oh, sorry. At some point, she divorced her husband. Oh. <laughs> I should add. And she was supporting her and her daughter oh. with this work. Um, and she she moved with her daughter to San Diego. And I don't know what became of her husband. Um, apparently, he also became physically abusive at some point. <gasps> oh. Unfortunate. So she left him and, yeah, they went to California, her and her daughter. She went there to help uh, the fish and cannery workers organize. I guess most of them lived in Boyle Heights and... I mean, historically, that is a yeah. Mexican neighborhood, sadly becoming gentrified. <laughs> Gen- gentrified? Gentrified, yes. G- gentrified. <laughs> That's the wrong word. Yes, my bad. <laughs> Today, the working conditions were terrible, as you can imagine. So, yeah, this is when she... Uh, went to organize and unionize them. And they were 75% women working tuna packing canneries. (laughs) And then 1939, I'm telling you, I cannot talk today. Don't go out into the sun. I'm not joking. (laughs) Stay indoors. Yeah. Anyway, so in 1939, she pulled together the first Latino civil rights assembly, which was called El Congreso de Pueblos que Hablan Español. Yeah. And this was the first ever conference meeting of its time. It brought together uh, Mexican-American unions, which was the biggest group of the time, which is why I always want to say, like, I know we're not all Mexican. They just happen to be all Mexican, mostly Mexican in these groups. So Mexican-American unions, mutual aid associations, political clubs, other organizations all came together. And it was like the first meeting like this held in Spanish. They exchanged information, established a network of organizations, and they were um, to discuss a civil rights agenda. Yeah, she was, I mean, essentially she was a key organizer in the whole country for Latino workers. And although she was like a key organizer, she, you know, always, she was quoted as saying like, one person can't do anything It's only with others that things are accomplished. And this is a very, I mean, you know, for the people type of sentiment. And it's true. Um, But yeah, it's, you can't do it alone. You need a village. You need a community. And that's very like anti, I I mean, it is like an anti-American way of thinking because, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because it's very individualized here. Yeah. Which is, ugh, I hate it. (laughs) Yeah. The meeting, the conference, of course. So, uh, you know about the Un-American Committee? Yeah. The House of, yeah. They were like, you know, going around calling things un-American and communists mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. sending people to jail. And yeah, the FBI yeah. was spying on people mm-hmm. because of people. Yeah. So, the House Un-American Committee in Washington, 
decided to investigate the leaders or organizers of the Congress or sorry, conference, because this was a very un-American conference to them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so they also uh, investigated her, Luisa Moreno. And the one of the congressmen who pointed everyone to investigate the um, organizers, his name is Martin Dies. Or is it D's? It's D-I-E-S. D-I-E-S? Yeah. I mean... Which looks like Dies to me. I don't know. Yeah, I'll call him by his first name. <laughs> so this congressman uh, accused El Congreso uh, of attempting to separate Mexicans of the Southwest from the rest of the United States with the intent of forming a new republic or returning the Southwest to Mexico. Which is not what they were meeting. That was not the reason. I mean, they were about labor organizing, yes. right? Yes. And he accused them, obviously, of being communists and of... White people can say anything. Yeah. Of their anti- anti-agribusiness stance. He also charged the the organizers of the of El Congreso, uh, which is you know, what they call themselves, mm-hmm. with fermenting violent riots and revolutionary activities. And so, you know, because they were charged and now under the watch of the un-American committee, there was like, there's going to be a full investigation, which could end up in prison time, right? Mm-hmm. So during this time, she, Luisa Moreno, decided to leave San Diego and then she went to Texas. And here she helped the women working in the pecan shelling factories. Okay. And uh, if you recall our previous episode uh, on Emma Tenayuca. Yeah. She worked with her in organizing this. All right. (laughs) Yeah. Which I uh, was when I saw her name, I was like, oh, (laughs) I know her. Yeah. (laughs) We don't actually know her, but I know her. (laughs) So she arrived with little Mitil her daughter in 1938 to Texas and they rented a small house in San Antonio. She visited the community. She saw, you know, the poverty that the Hispanic community of that's what the, the word they use. Cause I know mm-hmm. a lot of people don't use that anymore of the time. And she, this is um, was quoted saying, I could detect the harshness and cruelty of the system everywhere. And so here is where she helped Emma Tenayuca organize the women and she or was there, and I think if you recall from the episode, Emma was arrested during one of these protests. So was Luisa Moreno mm. in that same protest. But she ended up being released without charges. And um, then in 1940, she was now the chief organizer. She returned to Los Angeles and, and San Diego and or the area, I guess. And the UCAPAWA. Oh. I don't remember the full name. Okay. The United Cannery, Cannery Agricultural Packing and Allied Workers of America. Uh-huh. Or Yukapawa. Yukapawa. I don't know. Sounds weird. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, she now was the chief organizer of the organization. Yukapawa. Of Yukapawa, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she just traveled back and forth California to uh, help organize, help break discriminatory hiring habits of the canneries. And in San Diego, she successfully got the Royal Packing Plant to uh, pledge that they would not like discriminate at, w- at work while hiring people. 
She also at some point was in L.A. where she got the same sort of promise, like non-discriminatory hiring Mm -hmm. from the coconut walnut. Sorry, not coconut. California Walnut Growers Association. I merged California and (laughs) walnut (laughs) into coconut. I like I was I drinking said, I water. I cannot read today. <laughs> Coconut. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> the uh, manager of the Coconut, the California Walnut Association, his name was W.T. Weber. And he at some point wrote somewhere. I don't know where he wrote, but he was quoted saying that Luisa Moreno, he had a high regard for her character, ability and honesty. Um, He just thought very highly of her because that's how she presented herself and that's who she was. She, in all her activism and movements that, you know, we've been discussing, a lot of these workers were undocumented workers. And while the sentiments of many in the country, right, at the time were like, Mm -hmm. oh, these, these immigrants, these aliens, she was quoted saying these people are not and this is she said this like everywhere she went these people are not aliens they have contributed their endurance sacrifices youth and labor to the southwest they have paid more taxes than all the stockholders of california's industrialized agriculture the sugar beet companies and largest con interests that operate or have operated with the labor of mexican workers and i mean just like uh emma denayuca mm-hmm both of them worked extensively in organizing and defending specifically undocumented Mexican workers. And then in 1942, I have never heard of this. I actually want to look into this case. But have you heard of the Sleepy Lagoon murder? No. Okay, I'm going to give you a quick Wikipedia overview of it because I didn't write up anything about it. Just to say that she became involved this case led into to activism by the Mexican community, and she was a big leader in that movement. But the Sleepy Lagoon murder, it's, it happened in California, Southern California. So the Sleepy Lagoon murder was the name that L.A. newspapers used to describe the death of a man named Jose Gallardo Diaz, who was discovered unconscious and dying or dead near a reservoir. And this reservoir had been dubbed Sleepy Lagoon. By just people in the area, it was highly used by Mexicans in the area to swim. And so he had been seen before he was, uh, before he died, he had been seen partying nearby at, well, I guess in the area, because this happened in wherever Lane Bell, California is. I don't mm. know where that is. I don't know either. But Southern California. Mm-hmm. So when he was oh yeah he was dying and he he was taken by ambulance to the hospital that's where he died and he was found to have had a head fracture at the base of his skull it was believed that it was caused by repeated falls or even like a car accident like he was hit by a car the cause of death is not clear to this day but LAPD was quick as fuck to arrest 17 Mexican American young men for no reason other than they were mexican they were like the bias of the judge of the of the jury it was clear and 12 of the 17 were convicted of second degree murder and the rest were sent with lesser charges to the la county jail but they were all convicted Mm -hmm. 
So this happened in 1943, but a little bit later, the Zoot Suit riots happened. And we have to do an episode on that. Yeah. But the during because I think the murder happened and then almost immediately the Zoot Suit riots happened. They're not related, mm-hmm. only in the sense that the bio, the Zoot Suit riots were viewed by everyone else. I was like, oh, my God, Mexicans are savages and they're terrible and violent Mm -hmm. and so the zutsu riots themselves like created a bias in the jury and the judge the judge already had a bias obviously Mm -hmm. but they because of the zutsu riots they were like oh these obviously these young mexican men are guilty because they're all violent and so mexican-american and mexican activists of the time were protesting this charge because there was no evidence on these young men yeah. at all. Um, nothing tying them to the murder at all, except that, I mean, honestly, just that they were from the area, like nothing. But the media portrayed them terribly. They were called the 38th Street Gang. They were deemed zoot suitors. So that's why they were found guilty. And activists became involved. They created the Sleepy Lagoon Defense Committee. These were community members and activists who came together to support the defendants. They had served a little over a year and then the Court of Appeals unanimously decided that there was no evidence. It was not sufficient for the guilty verdict and they reversed the convictions mm. in People versus Zamora, um, which I guess is, is this went all the way up to yeah the appeals court. I mean, in part, thanks to the committee um, as well, because they continue to defend these young men and she was a big part of that committee which is why I had to talk about this. Um, but I mean, honestly, maybe we should cover yeah. this too. I'm going to leave that tab open. <laughs> Add it to my 80 tabs. <laughs> uh, but, you know, time passed. And as we know from even just various episodes we talked about here, the 1940s, a lot of Mexicans were brought in um during for the bracero program Mm -hmm. because of world war ii and to fill the what's it called like labor shortage yes thank you labor shortage but then once everyone was returning from war and they needed those jobs back then you know a bunch of people were deported Mm -hmm. um so this was operation wetback it just, and it w- happened in the 1950s. And yes, that, that's what that was the it name. Was called, yeah. yeah, it was called Operation Wetback. The INS, the Immigration and Natural Naturalization Service, deported Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. Mm-hmm. And this operation, like, yes, a lot of people were deported. But I personally, it seems that a, a lot of people targeted during the deportations were labor leaders to break yeah. up labor movements. Yeah. And, like, you know, one could view that as a conspiracy theory, but, like, it literally happened. It's a conspiracy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not a theory. Like, they used Operation Web. This was one of the ways that they broke up labor movements. Yes, exactly. And one of these people deported or threatened for deportation under Operation Wetback was Luisa Moreno. I mean, she she had been under FBI watch for a long time because mm-hmm. of her activism already. And so when Operation Wetback began, she and her new husband, she remarried at some point during all this to a white man from like 
Nebraska, I want to say. It was like somewhere mm. random, but um, not a not a Latino, a white mm-hmm. man, right? And I, I say this specifically because they both received deportation, threatening deportation letters. Uh, under what grounds would he be deported? <laughs> I think just because he either has to go with her or oh, stay by himself. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. She had been labeled a dangerous alien, quote unquote. And so that's why she was being deported. She was offered citizenship to testify against Harry Bridges, which I don't know anything about this, actually. Who's Harry Bridges? <laughs> oh, a communist mm. union leader. Okay. Oh, International Longshoremen's Association. Oh. And Warehouse Union. Okay. So they wanted her to testify against him, a labor leader, and she refused it to do it. She... <laughs> she was like, I will not be a free woman with a mortgage soul, is what she said. Wow. And so on November 30th, 1950, she self-deported. Oh. She and her husband and her daughter left. Um, and her husband's name it was Gary Bemis. And he's from Nebraska. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just uh, he left with her. And they went to Ciudad Juarez. Then slowly they were making their way to Ciudad Mexico, where she spent a lot of time as well. And there was a warrant out for her deportation, but she didn't wait to be deported. They self-deported. So, and this had been issued also because she was a Communist Party member. Eventually they settled in Guatemala, but then they were forced to flee Guatemala, of course. <laughs> so they were forced to flee Guatemala in 1954 because this is when the CIA mm. sponsored coup of President Jacobo Arbenz Guzman. Mm-hmm. I think we've mentioned him in passing in maybe our first coffee episode. He might have been the one that had been giving the land, land back, back that I mm-hmm. talked about. I think I could be wrong. But however, the, the coup was CIA sponsored. She had to flee her homeland of Guatemala. I think it was 1960. That her husband passed away. And after her husband passed away, um, she, after hearing about, you know, the Cuban revolution and the triumph of the revolution, she lived in Cuba for some time. So is that where she went after Guatemala, after fleeing Guatemala to Cuba? Oh, yeah. Well, I think she went back to Mexico for a little bit. Oh, because okay. She had to flee in 1954 and she oh, didn't see, go to Cuba until 1960. Oh. And she spent some time teaching on the island and then she later did return to Guatemala where she talked to anyone that wanted to interview her journalists about labor movements her life Mm -hmm. and then she did pass away just of old age Mm. I didn't write when let me just oh so I when I said her husband passed away Mm -hmm. they were in Mexico City um at the time he had gotten emphysema and they could not afford like a nurse Oh, and so she had become basically his 24 hour nurse. He required an oxygen tank to breathe. She continued giving him his medication and injections and he died in her arms in 1960. Oh, and this is when she grief stricken and weaker because she's older, returned to or not returned, but went to Cuba. And how old was she at this point? Do you know? Um. Oh, oh, she was an English translator. I'm glad I like look, <laughs> went back to this website because this is a lot of stuff I didn't write. Yeah, she taught English in, in Cuba. Oh, and then after Cuba, she went back to Tijuana or not back to, I don't think she had actually lived in Tijuana. Man, she went everywhere. Yeah. 
Oh, and looks like she wanted to return to San Diego because this is where she spent the most time, mm-hmm, really. Mm-hmm. But she couldn't because of the deportation yeah. case. But I'm so glad that I uh, went back to this website again because I have literal chills. So I said she went back to or she went to Tijuana, right? Yeah. After Cuba. And in Tijuana, she worked at a an art shop. After this, in 1977, she moved to Guadalajara. Oh, right. Shout out. Yeah. And she managed apartments. I guess she had a she had a stroke by the cathedral oh. at this time. She felt dizzy, collapsed, injured her head. Oh. And she had another stroke a little bit after oh. this. And this is when her brother Ernesto took her back to Guatemala. And Luisa Moreno. Yeah, she she died in Guatemala in 1992. Yeah. November 4th, wow. 1992. But she worked in labor activism for over 35 years. Wow. It looks like. And she had a good friend named Bert Corona, who's also, and I think another... Like a labor organizer? Yeah. American labor and civil rights leader. And he, about her, said she bore all of these conflicts, not only because of the cause of freedom in the United States for Hispanics, but because she is that rare human being for whom the human household is her family. Oh. And her her daughter, Mitil, she, she while she was marching uh, in protest of Proposition 187, and this was in 1994, I think. That sounds familiar. Yes. Yeah, that was 1994. So she was walking, you know, protesting during this time. As she marched, she thought of her mom. Hmm. She was like, my mom's here in spirit. Oh, <laughs> oh, I'm going to cry. And <laughs> she said, I think of my mother and she's in my heart when I participate for the struggle of justice. Oh, but yeah, I mean, wow. Just she did so much. I mean, she was amazing. Iconic. Trailblazing. Yeah. Trailblazing. Oh my God, I can't talk. Yes, truly, <laughs> I agree. Don't judge me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just, uh, I'm amazed. I'm amazed by her life. Truly, same. That's all I have. <laughs> I have a bukele update. <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't write anything. I'm just reading from the email I got from CSPES, but I feel like I need to, we need to talk okay. about it a little bit. You're right. You're yeah. Right. Um, all right. Time for a Bukele update. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. You should just get a button to press. How do you do I that? I know. I need to do that. <laughs> um, okay. So president slash dictator Bukele <laughs> this week filed the paperwork to run in February, in the February 2024 presidential elections, despite there being Multiple, in bold in my email, it's bolded. <laughs> yeah, as it should be. Multiple constitutional prohibitions on consecutive presidential terms. This man is going to be a dick. He's a dictator, but he's going to keep it going against the Constitution. Does the email include that he is the second or the first to do this since? Okay, I'll let you do. I'll let you, I'll let you so, do yeah. that then. He's the only Salvadorian president to attempt to stay in office past the five-year mandate since the uh, brutal dictatorial reign of General 
Maximiliano Hernández Martínez, who ruled from 1931 to 1944 and oversaw the horrible massacre of over 30,000 indigenous people in 1932. And this is what we talked about in the coffee episode, the genocide of yes. the people. Yeah. Yeah. So it's truly sad to see this happen. And um, oh, shit, I broke my pen in frustration. <laughs> um, oh it's sad God. to see this happening. And we in a lot of people saw it coming, us included. With that said, we will not stop talking shit about Bukele. It just it's just horrible. It is. It is. God, there was something else I saw. Did I send it to you? Like a tweet and are you replied like, wow. Mm, I think you did send me something. I just want to see, because it was something about the mass arrests. Oh, like how many people have been arrested so far? How many people have died from it? I think is what you sent me. Yeah. Mm, no, I sent you a, a, a link about Isabel Allende. Oh, that's that right. Yeah, en Chile la gente está añorando a un bukele. Yo digo, tengan cuidado, eso fue Pinochet, you know, saying people also liked Pinochet before he, I mean, some people, obviously some people have always been calling it out, but. But like the popularity that they have, you yes. know. Yeah. And that's very true of many dictators. So it's just very unfortunate to see democracy destroyed in front of our very eyes in real time uh while people are praising it uh-huh. as a good thing and it's yes. not yeah especially with you know the history of el salvador yeah yeah sad very sad very sad and you know even if he hadn't around announced his re-election there's also been uh protest because with the state of exception still being in place it wouldn't be a true free election anyway. It won't be. This is true. Especially with the, you know, arbitrary arrest from the state of exception. Like people don't feel and people don't have. It's not even a feeling. It's like a true thing. There, It's political repression, right? Because yes. people that oppose Bukele, um, people that fight for the environment, um, activists have all been arrested and held, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because from the state of exception, like using that as an excuse. Mm-hmm. And why is that still in place? There's no reason, <laughs> you know, other than dictatorial reasons. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> yeah. So, yeah, we'll, it's something we'll keep an eye out. An eye out. Keep on? Keep, whatever. <laughs> keep an eye on? We'll keep an eye on it. We'll update as needed as we have been. Yeah, we'll keep talking about it. Um, and we'll just let it be known time and time again that we very firmly stand against Bukele and his bullshit. Yes, yes. And yeah, that is our episode for today. I hope that this was one less historia unknown for you. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.